Part Five of Batwing by Sax Romer, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Batwing, Chapter Thirteen, at the Guest House. I presented myself at the guest house at half past eleven. My mental state was troubled and indescribably complex. Perhaps my own uneasy thoughts were responsible for the idea, but it seemed to me that the atmosphere of Cray's folly had changed yet again. Never before had I experienced a sense of foreboding like that which had possessed me throughout the hours of this bright summer's morning. Colonel Menendez had appeared about nine o'clock, he exhibiting no traces of illness that were perceptible to me. But this subtle change which I had detected, or thought I had detected, was more marked in Madame Stemmer than in any one. In her strange still eyes I had read what I can only describe as a stricken look. It had none of the heroic resignation and acceptance of the inevitable which had so startled me in the face of the Colonel on the previous day. There was a bitterness in it, as of one who has made a great but unwilling sacrifice and again I had found myself questing that faint but fugitive memory, conjured up by the eyes of Madame de Stemmer. Never had the shadow lain so darkly upon this house as it lay this morning, with the sun blazing gladly out of a serene sky. The birds, the flowers, and Mother Earth herself bespoke the joy of summer. But beneath the roof of Cray's folly dwelt a spirit of unrest, of apprehension. I thought of that queer lull which comes before a tropical storm, and I thought I read a knowledge of pending evil even in the glances of the servants. I had spoken to Harley of this fear. He had smiled and nodded grimly, saying, "'Evidently, Knox, you have forgotten that to-night is the night of the full moon.' It was in no easy state of mind, then, that I opened the gate and walked up to the porch of the guest-house that the solution of the grand mystery of Cray's folly would automatically resolve these lesser mysteries I felt assured, and I was supported by the idea that a clue might lie here. The house, which from the roadway had an air of neglect, proved on close inspection to be well tended, but of an unprosperous aspect. The brass knocker, doorknob, and letter-box were brilliantly polished, whilst the windows and the window curtains were spotlessly clean but the place cried aloud for the service of the decorator, and it did not need the deductive powers of a Paul Harley to determine that Mr. Cullen Camber was in straitened circumstances. In response to my ringing the door was presently opened by Ah Tsung. His yellow face exhibited no trace of emotion whatever. He merely opened the door and stood there looking at me. "'Is Mr. Camber at home?' I inquired. "'Master Nogat!' crooned Ah Tsung. He proceeded quietly to close the door again. "'One moment,' I said, "'one moment. I wish at any rate to leave my card.' Ah Tsung allowed the door to remain open, but— "'No use palaba no fashion,' he said. "'No fella come here. Sabi?' "'I sabi right enough,' I said. "'But all the same, you've got to take my card in to Mr. Camber.' I handed him a card as I spoke, and suddenly, addressing him in pigeon, of which, fortunately, I had a smattering. "'Be long very quick, Atsung,' I said sharply, "'or plenty big trouble, Sabi?' "'Sabi, Sabi,' he muttered, nodding his head, 
and leaving me standing in the porch he retired along the sparsely carpeted hall. This hall was very gloomily lighted, but I could see several pieces of massive old furniture and a number of bookcases, all looking incredibly untidy. Rather less than a minute elapsed, I suppose, when from some place at the farther end of the hallway Mr. Camber appeared in person. He wore a threadbare dressing-gown, the silken collar and cuffs of which were badly frayed. His hair was disheveled, and palpably he had not shaved this morning. He was smoking a corn-cob pipe, and he slowly approached, glancing from the card which he held in his hand in my direction, and then back again at the card, with a curious sort of hesitancy. In spite of his untidy appearance, I could not fail to mark the dignity of his bearing and the almost arrogant angle at which he held his head. "'Mr. Er, Malcolm Knox?' he began, fixing his large eyes upon me with a look in which I could detect no sign of recognition. "'I am advised that you desire to see me.' "'That is so, Mr. Camber,' I replied cheerily. "'I fear I have interrupted your work, but as no other opportunity may occur of renewing an acquaintance, which, for my part, I found extremely pleasant—' "'Of renewing an acquaintance, you say, Mr. Knox?' Yes. Quite. He looked me up and down critically. To be sure, we have met before, I understand. We met yesterday, Mr. Camber, you may recall. Having chanced to come across a contribution of yours of the Occult Review, I have availed myself of your invitation to drop in for a chat. His expression changed immediately, and the somber eyes lighted up. Ah, of course! he cried. You are a student of the transcendental. Forgive my seeming rudeness, Mr. Knox, but indeed my memory is of the poorest. Pray come in, sir. Your visit is very welcome." He held the door wide open and inclined his head in a gesture of curious old-world courtesy which was strange in so young a man. And congratulating myself upon the happy thought which had enabled me to win such instant favour, I presently found myself in a study which I despair of describing. In some respects it resembled the lumber-room of an antiquary, whilst in many particulars it corresponded to the interior of one of those second-hand bookshops which abound in the neighbourhood of Charing Cross Road. The shelves with which it was lined literally bulged with books, and there were books on the floor, books on the mantelpiece, and books, some open and some shut, some handsomely bound and some having the covers torn off, upon every table and nearly every chair in the place. Volume seven of Burton's monumental Thousand Nights and a Night lay upon a littered desk before which I presumed Mr. Camber had been seated at the time of my arrival. Some wet vessel, probably a cup of tea or coffee, had at some time been set down upon the page at which this volume was open, for it was marked with a dark brown ring. A volume of Fraser's golden bough had been used as an ashtray, apparently, since the binding was burned in several places where cigarettes had been laid upon it. In this interesting, indeed unique apartment, East met West, unabashed by Kipling's dictum. Roman tear-vases and Egyptian tomb-offerings stood upon the same shelf as empty bass-bottles, and a hideous wooden idol from the South Sea Islands leered on eternally, unmoved by the presence upon its distorted head of a soft felt hat, 
made, I believe, in Philadelphia. Strange implements from early British barrows found themselves in the company of thuggy daggers. There were carved mammals' tusks and snake emblems from the Yucatan. Against a Chinese ivory model of the Temple of Ten Thousand Buddhas rested a Coptic crucifix made from a twig of the holy rose-tree. Across an ancient Spanish coffer was thrown a Persian rug into which had been woven the monogram of Shah Jahan and the text from the Koran. It was easy to see that Mr. Cullen Camber's studies must have imposed a severe strain upon his purse. "'Sit down, Mr. Knox, sit down,' he said, sweeping a vellum-bound volume of Eliphas Levi from a chair and pushing the chair forward. "'The visit of a fellow-student is a rare pleasure for me. And you find me, sir?' He seated himself in a curious, carved chair, which stood before the desk. "'You find me engaged upon inquiries, the result of which will constitute chapter forty-two of my present book.' Pray glance at the contents of this little box." He placed in my hands a small box of dark wood, evidently of great age. It contained what looked like a number of shriveled beans. Having glanced at it curiously, I returned it to him, shaking my head blankly. "'You are puzzled,' he said, with a kind of boyish triumph which lighted up his face, which rejuvenated him and gave me a glimpse of another man. These, sir," he touched the shriveled objects with a long, delicate forefinger, "'are seeds of the sacred lotus of ancient Egypt. They were found in the tomb of a priest.' "'And in what way do they bear upon the inquiry to which you referred, Mr. Camber?' "'In this way,' he replied, drawing toward him a piece of newspaper upon which rested a mound of coarse shag. "'I maintain that the vital principle survives within them. Now, I propose to cultivate these seeds, Mr. Knox. Do you grasp the significance of this experiment?" He knocked out the corn-cob upon the heel of his slipper and began to refill the hot bowl with shag from the newspaper at his elbow. "'From a physical point of view, yes,' I replied slowly. "'But I should not have supposed such an experiment to come within the scope of your own particular activities, Mr. Camber.' "'Ah!' he returned triumphantly, at the same time stuffing tobacco into the bowl of the corn-cob. "'It is for this very reason that chapter forty-two of my book must prove to be the hub of the whole, and the whole, Mr. Knox, I am egotist enough to believe, shall establish a new focus for thought, an intellectual Rome bestriding and uniting the seven hills of unbelief.' He lighted his pipe and stared at me complacently. Whilst I had greatly revised my first estimate of the man, my revisions had been all in his favour. Respecting his genius, my first impression was confirmed. That he was ahead of his generation, perhaps a new Galileo, I was prepared to believe. He had a pride of bearing which I think was partly racial, but which in part, too, was the insignia of intellectual superiority. He stood above the commonplace, caring little for the views of those around and beneath him. From vanity he was utterly free. His was strangely like the egotism of true genius. "'Now, sir,' he continued, puffing furiously at his corn-cob, "'I observed you glancing a moment ago at this volume of the Golden Bough.' He pointed to the scarred book which I have already mentioned. "'It is a work of profound scholarship.' 
but having perused its hundreds of pages, what has the student learned? Does he know why the twenty-sixth chapter of the Book of the Dead was written upon lapis lazuli, the twenty-seventh upon felspar, the twenty-ninth upon cornelian, and the thirtieth upon serpentine? He does not. Having studied Part Four, has he learned the secret of why Osiris was a black god, although he typified the sun? Has he learned why modern Christianity is losing its hold upon the nations, whilst Buddhism, so-called, counts its disciples by millions? He has not. This is because the scholar is rarely the seer." "'I quite agree with you,' I said, thinking that I detected the drift of his argument. "'Very well,' said he. I am an American citizen, Mr. Knox, which is tantamount to stating that I belong to the greatest community of traders which has appeared since the Phoenicians overran the then-known world. America has not produced the mystic, yet Judea produced the founder of Christianity, and Gautama Buddha, born of a royal line, established the creed of human equity. In what way did these magicians, for a miracle-worker is nothing but a magician, differ from ordinary men. In one respect only, they had learned to control that force which we have today termed will." As he spoke those words, Cullen Camber directed upon me a glance from his luminous eyes which frankly thrilled me. The bemused figure of the lavender arms was forgotten. I perceived before me a man of power a man of extraordinary knowledge and intellectual daring. His voice, which was very beautiful together with his glance, held me enthralled. "'What we call will,' he continued, "'is what the ancient Egyptians called ku. It is not mental. It is a property of the soul. At this point, Mr. Knox, I depart from the laws generally accepted by my contemporaries.' I shall presently propose to you that the eye of the divine architect literally watches every creature upon the earth." Literally? Literally, Mr. Knox. We need no images, no idols, no paintings. All power, all light comes from one source. That source is the sun. The sun controls will, and the will is the soul. If there were a cavern in the earth so deep that the sun could never reach it, and if it were possible for a child to be born in that cavern, do you know what that child would be?" "'Almost certainly blind,' I replied, beyond which my imagination fails me. "'Then I will inform you, Mr. Knox. It would be a demon.' "'What?' I cried, and was momentarily touched with the fear that this was a brilliant madman. "'Listen,' he said, and pointed with the stem of his pipe. Why in all ancient creeds is Hades depicted as below? For the simple reason that could such a spot exist and be inhabited, it must be sunless. Then it could only be inhabited by devils. And what are devils but creatures without souls?" "'You mean that a child born beyond reach of the sun's influence would have no soul?' "'Such is my meaning, Mr. Knox. Do you begin to see the importance of my experiment with the lotus seeds?" I shook my head slowly, whereupon, laying his corn-cob upon the desk, Colin Camber burst into a fit of boyish laughter, which seemed to rejuvenate him again, which wiped out the image of the magus completely, 
and only left before me a very human student of strange subjects, and withal a fascinating companion. "'I fear, sir,' he said presently, "'that my steps have led me farther into the wilderness than it has been your fate to penetrate. The whole secret of the universe is contained in the words day and night, darkness and light. I have studied both the light and the darkness, deliberately and without fear. A new age is about to dawn, sir, and a new age requires new beliefs, new truths." "'Were you ever in the country of the Hill Dyaks?' This abrupt question rather startled me, but— "'You refer to the Borneo Hill Country?' "'Precisely.' "'No, I was never there.' "'Then this little magical implement will be new to you,' said he. Standing up, he crossed to a cabinet littered untidily with all sorts of strange-looking objects, carved bones, queer little inlaid boxes, images, untidy manuscripts, and what not. He took up what looked like a very ungainly tobacco-pipe, made of some rich brown wood, and handing it to me. "'Examine this, Mr. Knox,' he said with the boyish smile of triumph returning again to his face. I did as he requested, and made no discovery of note. The thing clearly was not intended for a pipe. The stem was soiled, and moreover there was carving inside the bowl. So that presently I returned it to him, shaking my head. Unless one should be informed of the properties of this little instrument, he declared, discovery by experiment is improbable. Now note. He struck the hollow of the bowl upon the palm of his hand, and it delivered a high, bell-like note which lingered curiously. Then. Note again. He made a short striking motion with the thing, similar to that which one would employ who had designed to jerk something out of the bowl. And at the very spot on the floor where any object contained in the bowl would have fallen came a reprise of the bell note. Clearly, from almost at my feet it sounded, a high metallic ring. He struck upward, and the bell note sounded on the ceiling, to the right, and it came from the window in my direction, and the tiny bell seemed to ring beside my ear. I will honestly admit that I was startled, but— "'Dyak magic,' said Cullen Camber, "'one of nature's secrets not yet discovered by conventional Western science. It was known to the Egyptian priesthood, of course, hence the vocal Memnon. It was known to Madame Blavatsky, who employed an astral bell, and it is known to me.' He returned the little instrument to its place upon the cabinet. "'I wonder if the fact will strike you as significant,' said he, "'that the note which you have just heard can only be produced between sunrise and sunset.' Without giving me time to reply, "'The most notable survival of black magic, that is, the scientific employment of darkness against light, is to be met with in Haiti and other islands of the West Indies.' "'You are referring to voodooism?' I said slowly. He nodded, replacing his pipe between his teeth. "'A subject, Mr. Knox, which I investigated exhaustively some years ago.' I was watching him closely as he spoke, and a shadow, a strange shadow, crept over his face, a look almost of exaltation, of mingled sorrow and gladness which I find myself quite unable to describe. In the West Indies, Mr. Knox, he continued, in a strange altered voice, 
I lost all and found all. Have you ever realized, sir, that sorrow is the price we must pay for joy?" I did not understand his question, and was still wondering about it when I heard a gentle knock, the door opened, and a woman came in. Chapter 14 Isola Camber I find it difficult now to recapture my first impression of that meeting. About the woman, hesitating before me, there was something unexpected, something wholly unfamiliar. She belonged to a type with which I was not acquainted. Nor was it wonderful that she should strike me in this fashion, since my wanderings, although fairly extensive, had never included the West Indies, nor had I been to Spain. And this girl, I could have sworn that she was under twenty, was one of those rare beauties, a golden Spaniard. That she was not purely Spanish, I learned later. She was small and girlishly slight, with slender ankles and exquisite little feet. Indeed, I think she had the tiniest feet of any woman I had ever met. She wore a sort of white pinafore over her dress, and her arms, which were bare because of the short sleeves of her frock, were of a childlike roundness, whilst her creamy skin was touched with a faint tinge of bronze, as though, I remember thinking, it had absorbed and retained something of the southern sunshine. She had the swaying carriage which usually belongs to a tall woman, and her head and neck were Grecian in poise. Her hair, which was of a curious dull gold color, presented a mass of thick, tight curls, and her beauty was of that unusual character which makes a Cleopatra a subject of deathless debate. What I mean to say is this. Whilst no man could have denied, for instance, that Val Beverly was a charmingly pretty woman, nine critics out of ten must have failed to classify this golden Spaniard correctly or justly. Her complexion was peach-like in the oriental sense, that strange hint of gold underlying the delicate skin, and her dark blue eyes were shaded by really wonderful silken lashes. Emotion had the effect of enlarging the pupils a phenomenon rarely met with, so that now as she entered the room and found a stranger present they seemed to be rather black than blue. Her embarrassment was acute, and I think she would have retired without speaking, but— "'Isola?' said Cullen Camber, regarding her with a look curiously compounded of sorrow and pride. "'Allow me to present Mr. Malcolm Knox, who has honoured us with a visit.' He turned to me. "'Mr. Knox,' he said, it gives me great pleasure that you should meet my wife." Perhaps I had expected this, indeed subconsciously, I think I had. Nevertheless, at the words, my wife, I felt that I started. The analogy with Edgar Allan Poe was complete. As Mrs. Camber extended her hand with a sort of appealing timidity, it appeared to me that she felt herself to be intruding. The expression in her beautiful eyes when she glanced at her husband could only be described as one of adoration, and whilst it was impossible to doubt his love for her, I wondered if his colossal egotism were capable of stooping to affection. I wondered if he knew how to tend and protect this delicate southern girl wife of his. Remembering the episode of the Lavender Arms, I felt justified in doubting her happiness and in this I saw an explanation of the mingled sorrow and pride with which Cullen Camber regarded her. It might be betoken recognition of his own shortcomings as a husband. 
How nice of you to come and see us, Mr. Knox," she said. She spoke in a faintly husky manner which was curiously attractive, although lacking the deep, vibrant tones of Madame de Stemmer's memorable voice. Her English was imperfect, but her accent good. "'Your husband has been carrying me to enchanted lands, Mrs. Camber,' I replied. "'I have never known a morning to pass so quickly.' "'Oh,' she replied, and laughed with a childish glee which I was glad to witness. "'Did he tell you all about the book which was going to make the world good? Did he tell you it will make us rich as well?' "'Rich,' said Camber, frowning slightly. "'Nature's riches are health and love. If we hold these the rest will come.' Now that you have joined us, Isola, I shall beg Mr. Knox, in honour of this occasion, to drink a glass of wine and break a biscuit as a pledge of future meetings." I watched him as he spoke, a lean, unkempt figure invested with a curious dignity, and I found it almost impossible to believe that this was the same man who had sat in the bar of the Lavender Arms, sipping whisky and water. The resemblance to the portrait in Harley's office became more marked than ever. There was an air of high breeding about the delicate features, which, curiously enough, was accentuated by the unshaven chin. I recognized that refusal would be regarded as rebuff, and therefore— "'You are very kind,' I said. Colin Camber inclined his head gravely and courteously. "'We are very glad to have you with us, Mr. Knox,' he replied. He clapped his hands, and silent as a shadow, Ott Song appeared. I noted that although it was Camber who had summoned him, it was to Mrs. Camber that the Chinaman turned for orders. I had thought his yellow face incapable of expression, but as his oblique eyes turned in the direction of the girl, I read in them a sort of dumb worship, such as one sees in the eyes of a dog. She spoke to him rapidly in Chinese. "'Hoi, hoi!' he muttered. "'Hoi, hoi!' nodded his head and went out. I saw that Cullen Camber had detected my interest, for— "'Ah, Song is really my wife's servant,' he explained. "'Oh,' she said in a low voice, then looked at me earnestly. "'Ah, Song nursed me when I was a little baby, so high.' She held her hand about four feet from the floor and laughed gleefully. "'Can you imagine what a funny little thing I was?' "'You must have been a wonder-child, Mrs. Camber,' I replied with sincerity. And Art Song has remained with you ever since? Ever since, she echoed, shaking her head in a vaguely pathetic way. He will never leave me, do you think, Colin? Never, replied her husband. You are all he loves in the world. A case, Mr. Knox, he turned to me, of deathless fidelity rarely met with nowadays, and only possible, perhaps, in its true form in an Oriental. Mrs. Camber, having seated herself upon one of the few chairs which was not piled with books, her husband had resumed his place by the writing-desk, and I sought in vain to interpret the glances which passed between them. The fact that these two were lovers none could have mistaken. But here again, as at Cray's folly, I detected a shadow. I felt that something had struck at the very root of their happiness. In fact, I wondered if they had been parted and were but newly reunited, for there was a sort of constraint between them, the more marked on the woman's side than on the man's. I wondered how long they had been married, but felt that it would have been indiscreet to ask. Even as the idea occurred to me, however, 
an opportunity arose of learning what I wished to know. I heard a bell ring and— "'There is someone at the door, Cullen,' said Mrs. Camber. "'I will go,' he replied. "'Otsong has enough to do.' Without another word he stood up and walked out of the room. "'You see,' said Mrs. Camber, smiling in her naive way, "'we only have one servant. Except Otsong, her name is Mrs. Powis. She is visiting her daughter who is married. We made the poor old lady take a holiday.' It is difficult to imagine you're burdened with household responsibilities, Mrs. Camber," I replied. Please forgive me, but I cannot help wondering how long you have been married. For nearly four years. Really, I exclaimed, you must have been married very young. I was twenty. Do I look so young? I gazed at her in amazement. You astonish me, I declared, which was quite true and no mere compliment. I had guessed your age to be eighteen. Oh, she laughed, and, resting her hands upon the settee, leaned forward with sparkling eyes. How funny! Sometimes I wish I looked older. It is dreadful in this place, although we have been so happy here. At all the shops they look at me so funny, so I always send Mrs. Powis now. You are really quite wonderful, I said. You are Spanish, are you not, Mrs. Camber? She slightly shook her head, and I saw the pupils begin to dilate. Not really Spanish, she replied haltingly. I was born in Cuba. In Cuba, she nodded. Then it was in Cuba that you met Mr. Camber? She nodded again, watching me intently. It is strange that a Virginian should settle in Surrey. Yes, she murmured, you think so? But really, it is not strange at all. Colin's people are so proud, so proud. Do you know what they are like, those Virginians? Oh, I hate them." You hate them? No, I cannot hate them, for he is one. But he will never go back. Why should he never go back, Mrs. Camber? Because of me. You mean that you do not wish to settle in America? I could not, not where he comes from. They would not have me. Her eyes grew misty, and she quickly lowered her lashes. Would not have you? I exclaimed. I don't understand. No, she said, and smiled up at me very gravely. It is simple. I am a Cuban, one, as they say, of an inferior race, and of mixed blood. She shook her golden head as if to dismiss the subject and stood up, as Camber entered, followed by Ah Song bearing a tray of refreshments. Of the ensuing conversation, I remember nothing. My mind was focused upon the one vital fact that Mrs. Camber was a Cuban Creole. Dimly, I felt that here was the missing link for which Paul Harley was groping. For it was in Cuba that Cullen Camber had met his wife. It was from Cuba that the menace of Batwing came. What could it mean? Surely it was more than a coincidence that these two families, both associated with the West Indies, should reside within sight of one another in the Surrey Hills. Yet, if it were the result of design, the design must go on the part of Colonel Menendez, since the Cambers had occupied the guest-house before he had leased Cray's folly. I know not if I betrayed my absent-mindedness during the time that I was struggling vainly with these maddening problems, but presently, Mrs. Camber, having departed about her household duties, I found myself walking down the garden with her husband. 
This is the summer-house of which I was speaking, Mr. Knox," he said, and I regret to state that I retain no impression of his having previously mentioned the subject. During the time that Sir James Appleton resided at Cray's Folly, I worked here regularly in the summer months. It was Sir James, of course, who laid out the greater part of the gardens, and who rescued the property from the state of decay into which it had fallen. I roused myself from the profitless reverie in which I had become lost. We were standing before a sort of arbor which marked the end of the grounds of the guest-house. It overhung the edge of a miniature ravine, in which, over a pebbly course, a little stream pursued its way down the valley to feed the lake in the grounds of Cray's Folly. From this vantage-point I could see the greater part of Colonel Menendez's residence. I had an unobstructed view of the tower and of the Tudor garden. I abandoned my workshop, pursued Cullen Camber, when the—er—the new tenant took up his residence. I work now in the room in which you found me this morning." He sighed, and turning abruptly, led the way back to the house, holding himself very erect, and presenting a queer figure in his threadbare dressing-gown. It was now a perfect summer's day, and I commented upon the beauty of the old garden, which in places was bordered by a crumbling wall. Yes, a quaint old spot, said Camber. I thought at one time, because of the name of the house, that it might have been part of a monastery or convent. This was not the case, however. It derives its name from a certain Sir Jasper guest, who flourished, I believe, under King Charles of Merry Memory. Nevertheless, I added, the guest-house is a charming survival of more spacious days. True returned Cullen Camber gravely. Here it is possible to lead one's own life away from the noisy world. He sighed again wearily. Yes, I shall regret leaving the guest-house. What? You are leaving? I am leaving as soon as I can find another residence, suited both to my requirements and to my slender purse. But these domestic affairs can be of no possible interest to you. I take it, Mr. Knox, that you will grant my wife and myself the pleasure of your company at lunch?" "'Many thanks,' I replied, but really I must return to Cray's folly." As I spoke the words I had moved a little ahead at a point where the path was overgrown by a rose-bush, for the garden was somewhat neglected. "'You will quite understand,' I said, and turned. Never can I forget the spectacle which I beheld. Cullen Camber's peculiarly pale complexion had assumed a truly ghastly pallor, and he stood with tightly clenched hands, glaring at me almost insanely. "'Mr. Camber,' I cried with concern, "'are you unwell?' He moistened his dry lips and— "'You are returning to Cray's folly?' he said, speaking, it seemed, with difficulty. "'I am, sir. I am staying with Colonel Menendez.' Ah. He clutched the collar of his pajama-jacket and wrenched so strongly that the button was torn off. His passion was incredible, insane. The power of speech had almost left him. "'You are a guest of—of Devil Menendez?' he whispered, and the speaking of the name seemed almost to choke him. "'Of Devil Menendez! You—you are a spy! You have stolen my hospitality!' You have obtained access to my house under false pretenses. God, if I had known!" "'Mr. Camber,' I said sternly, 
and realized that I too had clenched my fists, for the man's language was grossly insulting. You forget yourself." "'Perhaps I do,' he muttered thickly. "'And therefore,' he raised a quivering forefinger, "'go! If you have any spark of compassion in your breast, go! Leave my house!' Nostrils dilated, he stood with that quivering finger outstretched, and now, having become as speechless as he, I turned and walked rapidly up to the house. "'Atsong! Atsong!' came a cry from behind me, in tones which I can only describe as hysterical. "'Mr. Knox's hat and stick! Quickly!' As I walked in past the study door, the Chinaman came to meet me, holding my hat and cane. I took them from him without a word, and the door being held open by Ah Tsong, walked out onto the road. My heart was beating rapidly. I did not know what to think nor what to do. This ignominious dismissal afforded an experience new to me. I was humiliated, mortified, but above all wildly angry. How far I had gone on my homeward journey I cannot say, when the sound of quickly pattering footsteps intruded upon my wild reverie. I stopped, turned, and there was Ah Tsong almost at my heels. "'Bling a chit from Lily Missy,' he said, and held out the note toward me. I hesitated, glaring at him in a way that must have been very unpleasant, but recovering myself, I tore open the envelope and read the following note, written in pencil and very shakily. Mr. Knox, please forgive him. If you knew what we have suffered from Signor Don Juan Menendez, I know you would forgive him. Please, for my sake. Isola Camber. The Chinaman was watching me, that strange, pathetic expression in his eyes, and— Tell your mistress that I quite understand and will write to her, I said. Hoi, hoi. Atsong turned and ran swiftly off, as I pursued my way back to Cray's Folly, in a mood which I shall not attempt to describe. CHAPTER Fifteen, UNREST I sat in Paul Harley's room. Luncheon was over, and although, as on the previous day, it had been a perfect repast, perfectly served, the sense of tension which I had experienced throughout the meal had made me horribly ill at ease. The shadow of which I had spoken elsewhere seemed to have become almost palpable. In vain I had ascribed it to a morbid imagination. Persistently it lingered. Madame de Stemmer's gaiety rang more false than ever. She twirled the rings upon her slender fingers and shot little inquiring glances all around the table. This spirit of unrest, from wherever it arose, had communicated itself to everybody. Madame's several bon mots, one and all, were failures. She delivered them without conviction, like an amateur repeating lines learned by heart. The colonel was unusually silent, eating little but drinking much. There was something unreal, almost ghastly, about the whole affair. And when at last Madame de Stemmer retired, bearing Val Beverly with her, I felt certain that the colonel would make some communication to us. If ever knowledge of portentous evil were written upon a man's face, it was written upon his, as he sat there at the head of the table, staring straightly before him. However— "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'if your inquiries here have led to no result of, shall I say, a tangible character, at least I feel sure that you must have realized one thing.' Harley stared at him sternly. 
I have realized, Colonel Menendez, he replied, that something is pending. Ah, murmured the Colonel, and he clutched the edge of the table with his strong brown hands. But, continued my friend, I have realized something more. You have asked for my aid, and I am here. Now you have deliberately tied my hands. What do you mean, sir? asked the other softly. I will speak plainly. I mean that you know more about the nature of this danger than you have ever communicated to me. Allow me to proceed, if you please, Colonel Menendez. For your delightful hospitality, I thank you. As your guest, I could be happy. But as a professional investigator, whose services have been called upon under most unusual circumstances, I cannot be happy, and I do not thank you." Their glances met. Both were angry, willful, and self-confident. Following a few moments of silence, "'Perhaps, Mr. Harley,' said the Colonel, "'you have something further to say?' "'I have this to say,' was the answer. "'I esteem your friendship, but I fear I must return to town without delay.' The Colonel's jaws were clenched so tightly that I could see the muscles protruding. He was fighting an inward battle, then— "'What?' he said. "'You would desert me?' "'I have never deserted any man who sought my aid.' "'I have sought your aid.' "'Then accept it!' cried Harley. "'This, or allow me to retire from the case. You ask me to find an enemy who threatens you, and you withhold every clue which could aid me in my search.' "'What clue have I withheld?' Paul Harley stood up. It is useless to discuss the matter further, Colonel Menendez, he said coldly. The Colonel rose also, and, Mr. Harley, he replied, and his high voice was ill-controlled, if I give you my word of honor that I dare not tell you more, and if, having done so, I beg of you to remain at least another night, can you refuse me? Harley stood at the end of the table, watching him. Colonel Menendez, he said, this would appear to be a game in which my handicap rests on the fact that I do not know against whom I am pitted. Very well, you leave me no alternative but to reply that I will stay. I thank you, Mr. Harley. As I fear I am far from well, dare I hope to be excused if I retire to my room for an hour's rest? Harley and I bowed, and the Colonel, returning our salutations, walked slowly out, his bearing one of grace and dignity. So that memorable luncheon terminated, and now we found ourselves alone, and faced with a problem which, from whatever point one viewed it, offered no single opening whereby one might hope to penetrate to the truth. Paul Harley was pacing up and down the room in a state of such nervous irritability as I never remembered to have witnessed in him before. I had just finished an account of my visit to the guest-house, and of the indignity which had been put upon me, and— Conundrums, conundrums, my friend exclaimed. This quest of the Batwing is like the quest of heaven, Knox. A hundred open doors invite us, each one promising to lead to the light, and if we enter, where do they lead? To mystification. For instance, Colonel Menendez has broadly hinted that he looks upon Colin Camber as an enemy. Judging from your reception at the guest-house today, such an enmity, and a deadly enmity, actually exists. But whereas Camber has resided here for three years, the Colonel is a newcomer. 
we are therefore offered the spectacle of a trembling victim seeking the sacrifice. Bah! It is preposterous. If you had seen Cullen Camber's face today, you might not have thought it so preposterous. But I should, Knox, I should. It is impossible to suppose that Colonel Menendez was unaware when he leased Cray's Folly that Camber occupied the guest-house. And Mrs. Camber is a Cuban, I murmured. Don't, Knox, my friend implored. This case is driving me mad. I have a conviction that it is going to prove my Waterloo. My dear fellow, I said, this mood is new to you. Why don't you advise me to remember Auguste Dupin? asked Harley bitterly. That great man, preserving his philosophical calm, doubtless by this time would have pieced together these disjointed clues, and have produced an elegant pattern ready to be framed and exhibited to the admiring public. He dropped down upon the bed, and, taking his briar from his pocket, began to load it in a manner which was almost vicious. I stood watching him, and offered no remark, until, having lighted the pipe, he began to smoke. I knew that these Indian moods were of short duration, and sure enough, presently— "'God bless us all, Knox,' he said, breaking into an amused smile. "'How we bristle when someone tries to prove that we are not infallible! How human we are, Knox, but how fortunate that we can laugh at ourselves!' I sighed with relief for Harley at these times imposed a severe strain even upon my easy-going disposition. "'Let us go down to the billiard-room,' he continued. "'I will play you a hundred up. I have arrived at a point where my ideas persistently work in circles. The best cure is golf. Failing golf, billiards.' The billiard-room was immediately beneath us, adjoining the last apartment in the east wing, and there we made our way. Harley played keenly, deliberately, concentrating upon the game. I was less successful, for I found myself alternately glancing toward the door and the open window, in the hope that Val Beverly would join us. I was disappointed, however. We saw no more of the ladies until tea-time, and if a spirit of constraint had prevailed throughout the luncheon, a veritable demon of unrest presided upon the terrace during tea. Madame de Stemmer made apologies on behalf of the colonel. He was prolonging his siesta, but he hoped to join us at dinner. "'Is the colonel's heart affected?' Harley asked. Madame de Stemmer shrugged her shoulders and shook her head, blankly. "'It is mysterious, the state of his health,' she replied. "'An old trouble, which began years and years ago in Cuba.' Harley nodded sympathetically, but I could see that he was not satisfied. Yet, although he might doubt her explanation, he had noted, and so had I, that Madame de Stemmer's concern was very real. Her slender hands were strangely unsteady. Indeed, her condition bordered on one of distraction. Harley concealed his thoughts, whatever they may have been, beneath that mask of reserve which I knew so well whilst I endeavoured in vain to draw Val Beverley into conversation with me. I gathered that Madame de Stemmer had been to visit the invalid, and that she was all anxiety to return was a fact she was wholly unable to conceal. There was a tired look in her still eyes, as though she had undertaken a task beyond her powers to perform, 
and so unnatural a quartet were we, that when presently she withdrew I was glad, although she took Val Beverly with her. Paul Harley resumed his seat, staring at me with unseeing eyes. A sound reached us through the drawing-room which told us that Madame de Stemmer's chair was being taken upstairs, a task always performed when Madame desired to visit the upper floors by Manuel and Pedro's daughter Nita, who acted as Madame's maid. These sounds died away, and I thought how silent everything had become. Even the birds were still, and presently, my eye being attracted to a black speck in the sky above, I learned why the feathered choir was mute. A hawk was hovering loftily overhead. Noting my upward glance, Paul Harley also raised his eyes. Ah, he murmured, a hawk. All the birds are cowering in their nests. Nature is a cruel mistress, Knox. End of chapter 15